Hi everybody, this is Thomas Barkey, artist and producer with the Artist Project. We're supporting and helping artists to have more fun, get better, and be more successful by building community and by sharing their secrets and real life experiences. Today, our cherished guest is Mr. Jeffrey Armstrong. He is a poet, author of many books, lifelong yogi, teacher, philosopher, an accomplished professional astrologer, and a true artist entrepreneur. Hi, Jeffrey, welcome. And how did you get started as an artist? I got started because I learned the English language, I think. My parents said that I loved long four-syllable words when I was three years old. I would do words they didn't even know. So I had this affinity for language right from the start. And the second thing was, I was looking for some truth. I was too young to know what it was, but it became the theme after a while. Whether you're lying or telling the truth, or whether you like questions or you just don't even care. And the people that cared, I found interesting, and the ones that didn't, I found boring. So you were growing up. I would say that growing up is waking up. And I was waking up to kind of, it's almost like a where was I, trying to grapple with certain issues. So where I found myself was in the midst of loving people. My family was basically loving and friendly and therefore useful. And so on the one hand, I was very safe and fortunate. And on the other hand, I was in a world crazy enough to annihilate whole cities at a single go. So I started asking all my elders if they had answers, and honestly, they just didn't, or they had only partial answers. I finally came to understand that the word question is rooted in the word quest. And so what was your quest? This lifetime, my quest was beauty and truth. The two things that affected me most were needless destruction and amazing beauty of so many things all around me. I didn't know at the time I was becoming essentially what we call a compulsive artist. What's one experience that you remember vividly where you first started to create? By the age of 13, one weekend, I decided to go to what is called a carnival in those days, a road show with rides that you go on, you eat popcorn, go on the ride, get sick, eat cotton candy, wonder why you're there. But the rides give you some kind of thrill. And so one night I went to this carnival and I was in Detroit, Michigan is where I was born, kind of a middle class motor city, industrial kind of place. This time when I did it, it affected me differently. It made me very existential. It made me very much inside myself in a certain way. And so I got home and I lived at that time in the basement of our house because I had four brothers and sisters younger than me living in the bedrooms upstairs. And I had this kind of unfinished cement wall basement, went downstairs and had my first real, I guess you could call it, serious, thoughtful, existential moment. And I suddenly grabbed a pen and paper and a poem came out. And it, it was the first one I ever wrote. And it's, I don't didn't memorize all the poems I wrote when I was young, but this one said, life is like a carnival filled with dirty little men, grubbing for pennies, offering cheap thrills to stupid people who lead empty, meaningless lives. And when I look in the mirror, I see not one person, but two. And I wonder, 
which one is really me? <laughs> do you remember how you felt in that moment? I do, very vividly. I felt like a hole in my head had broken open and poetry was starting to spill out. I felt like something had just happened to me because it wasn't my voice exactly. It was a voice that came through me. And from that moment on, poetry has poured out of me during my entire life for the last, I just turned 73. So throughout my life, poetry has just flowed through me and I've allowed it and written it down and I haven't stopped that process. So in retrospect, how did you explain and interpret that moment to yourself? It was a waking up, as in retrospect, I would say, there's a point at which we have enough of our faculties developed that we can go online. And so before that, I was halfway online and getting snippets of it and feeling empathically. And I was an empath, so I was feeling the world's pain. But it didn't become articulate. But at that moment, the whole computer went online. And now messages would come from experiences. And experiences would become distilled into words. And those words would come pouring out of me later on, a year later, a month later. But it was like I kept getting pregnant. I felt almost like the saying was like I was getting knocked up. By what? By life. Now I'm pregnant. And it feels more like having a baby than writing a poem. So my joke is when I'm going to have to write a poem, I'm pregnant. I'm 10 centimeters, I'm dilating, my water just broke, and I'm having a maybe. <laughs> so what was it like for you to be a young artist, and what was your environment like? I was at a rather large 2,000-person high school with a very interesting social environment of all kinds of creatures and people. and uh, So I would carry around what I thought was normal, my poems, But there was no one else in the school that did that. So I found myself in a unique kind of existential dilemma. But I wasn't a retiring kind of introspective, antisocial person. I was in the choir. I was in the drama department. I was an athlete. I was a champion wrestler. So I was a very avid participant in all the rest of the activities, except I was the only person compulsively writing poetry and walking around to try to find someone to read it to them, which is a good metaphor for what it is to be a poet. So when you first shared your art with the world, did they um, respond in, a, in an encouraging way? Did they love it or what, what happened? The standard reaction was, oh, that's nice. Are you going to the football game? <laughs> I think every artist has heard something similar when they show their baby to someone and they go, oh, that's cute, little ugly, little ugly and kind of weird. But uh, where's where's normal? <laughs> well, normal for artists is some sort of rejection. And, uh, you know, especially when we're beginning artists, we have to learn how to deal with that and be okay with that. How did that experience shape you and what did you make of it? It made me weigh the value of the experience that I'd had writing the poem against the value of the interaction with the human being and their opinions. 
And we all know what the saying is about opinions. Everyone's got one. And so I began to realize that something was happening to me that was just not happening to them. And they were otherwise fine and reasonable. But I realized that I was here on a journey that I wasn't going to get confirmation of from those around me for the most part. So who was the first person who supported you in your art and who you felt got what you were doing? I had one teacher who, if a woman could look like Yoda, she did. Her name was A-minus Alice Bailey because she gave everyone the lowest possible grade unless they did all the work. She was just this amazing, brilliant, she knew everything about Shakespeare. She was my professor of Shakespeare. And I got an A plus in E-minus Alice Benson's class, Bailey's class. So she became as if we were lovers, as if she saw something in me And I just did, I learned every nuance of the bard, his speech, the old English, the way he spoke it, the words he created. So it was beginning to be something that was now getting challenged and polished and taken to another level. It sounds like you had found somebody who fueled your development and gave you more reasons to thrive. When we have a guru, the first thing the guru does was to show us a correct standard of behavior that's as high as, as one can get in a particular field. And then to give us confirmation when we're starting to get it and to encourage us to bring out the essential nature of who we really are to validate that process. So one opinion like that is definitely worth 10,000 of the everyday opinions. We seldom get the fullness of a moment in the moment, but it was as if I was getting validated to enter the club. And the club was people who think thoughts that not everyone understands, but that's part of the territory. Don't be upset by it. Don't hold it against them. Just keep being true to yourself. So it, it, it calmed me down and took away that angry part and made it almost professional, you could say. Jeffrey, can you think of a moment where you were challenged as an artist and where you rose to the occasion? In the junior year of high school, I was in both men's glee club and The, the mixed choir. And our choir and vocal teacher was an ex-opera singer of considerable uh, fame and ability. So those of us in the music department at the high school at that time were in a very high-level professional musical environment, which doesn't happen that often at high school, that a, a world-class opera singer is now your music teacher teaching high school. So at one point, Uh, the choir, which was about a hundred uh, men and women, uh, which was a competitive choir that went all over the Midwest singing and competing for kudos and such. Uh, I was second tenor at this time, but he chose me 
to recite a poem to an audience of a couple of thousand people with a full choir behind me. And it's a poem by a black author. And I, I, for the moment, sadly, I forget his name, but the poem was about how God created the universe. So the poem begins, and imagine a hundred voice choir behind you, and they all go, They don't even know Om yet, but they're doing Om with a choir of just incredible voices and an audience of 2,000 people. And I get up in front of the microphone, and I'm 110 pounds. I haven't gained weight much yet. Uh, And I lift my trousers up above my waist, my hips, and take a deep breath and start to begin. And as I empty my breath, my pants fall down two inches on my hips. The whole audience just laughs, and there's a huge moment of laughter. And then the choir, on cue, does the om again and goes, om. And I, in this booming voice, say, and God stepped out onto space, and as far as the eye of God could see, darkness was everywhere. And God said, let there be light. And the whole audience just went from giggling at my pants almost falling off to where did that booming voice come from? And they were just, they were riveted. And I did the whole poem from memory. I wasn't reading it. It was memorized with this incredible choir behind me. So I had these kind of peak moments that inspire you to completely come out of yourself. So you might say, I was an actor and an extrovert by temperament with the introverted compulsions of a writer, but the extroverted personality of one who isn't afraid pretty much to do anything. You surely stepped up to the mic there. (laughs) I did. I stepped up for the first time. Later, when you were enrolled in university, that was the time, the big coming out of psychedelics. Did you have any experience with that? Timothy Leary, Alpert, all these people, they were psychologists involving us in their experiment. Those of us who took psychedelics at that time weren't people who were inclined to be addicts. We weren't people who wanted to blot out life and reality. We were people who were given an electron microscope and an electron telescope called psychedelics. And what psychedelics really do to you, they amplify the acetylcholine channel, one of the four neurotransmitters. And what they do is give you 10,000 times the normal vision. 10,000 times the amount of information comes into your nervous system at all at one time. That's an arbitrary number, but it feels like it. And I was one of those who could have that experience without being destabilized, without becoming an addict, without losing my focus in life. And so what the psychedelics did in the small amount of time, few years that I tried them, is they opened doors of perception. And I realized that the trick was to 
be able to see to that level without the drug. And what did that do to your poetry and to your develop as, development as a poet? Well, the poetry kept flowing almost like I had a companion who was having me take notes at each level of this development. Poetry was now a permanent part of me, so it was almost like the uh, the person, what do they call it, the court recorder. Uh, so the poetry was the court recorder at the trial, and life was the trial, or a series of trials, and poetry was the constant side commentary about the level of experiences that life was providing. Back then, just like now, I think drugs were uh, always part of society. As I looked around, I saw suburban women addicted to various psychic drugs that doctors were giving them, as one of the singers in that genre called it, Mother's Little Helper. So I was raised with half of the women in the neighborhood on some kind of drug from their psychologist or psychiatrist or their doctor. So I realized that whatever a substance could do to you, you had to learn how to do by yourself and not have to be addicted or owned by the pusher who was selling the substance. So for some reason, I was not at all designed to become addicted to the substance, but I was aware that I wanted to learn the experience so literally, those drugs opened the doors of perception, and then I pushed the drugs away and said, now I've got to find how to be like this just by my consciousness. I was becoming a yogi, and I didn't even know it yet. Let's talk a little bit about fear. How did you handle fear as a young artist? I noticed what fear was doing to people and to me, and I didn't like it at all. So I took a vow that if I was afraid of anything, I would immediately go do it. But the most irrational fear was that other people's opinion could disable us. What I saw was everyone was being disabled by the emotional reaction of the people around them. And that it, little fears like being afraid of an object or of a situation you could work on by yourself. <clears throat> but this fear of other human beings' opinion was disabling everything. So I decided that I would start curing myself of fear. So by this time, on my guitar, I could play maybe 10 songs, 15 songs, folk songs. So I would go to the Greyhound bus stop, the Greyhound bus station in Detroit, and I would go and sing to the public until I wasn't embarrassed, no matter what their reaction was. And if I was afraid of something, I would go do it. I would go straight at it. A po being a poet was a symbol of looking for the truth. And at a certain point, it started pervading everything. So if I um, understand you right, you were looking for opportunities to show yourself. There's something in those of us who are compelled by the arts that has to be an exhibitionist. It's like we are from a nudist colony surrounded by people who wear clothes all the time <laughs> and have never had the beauty of being completely naked without having any despicable thoughts, but to be in the presence of nakedness and see nothing but divine beauty. So the last story is when I was in university, 
I lived in a house on the very edge of campus that was owned by one of the professors in the visual arts department, who, as it turns out, was quite a bohemian and artist who, again, ended up working in a mid-range university as a professor to, to pay for his rent so he could keep on painting. And my roommate was a painter. She wasn't really a roommate. She lived in the apartment downstairs, but she and I became lovers. And being bohemians and artists, we had this in love with you, not tied up with you, not bound by you, but you're so beautiful. We spend beautiful time together and then we go about our beautiful lives. A true artist's love affair. And one day she said to me, by the way, you are looking for a job, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She said, well, they're looking for a model in the life drawing classes in the art department right now. And it pays $20 an hour. And in those days, that was a lot of money. Yeah, and it paid cash. So under the table, cash, $20 an hour, will you go nude? So I went to the interview and they said, you're going to you know, be in front of a class of 60 or so people and for life drawing classes. And can you stand still and do this and that? And I said, sure. They said, okay, well, if it's okay with you, then you're hired. And I said, okay. And they said, okay, so come on Monday and bring your jockstrap. And I said, excuse me? Because I knew that the ladies in the life drawing classes were completely naked. And they said, well, yes, because in Michigan, it's against the law for men to go naked. Women can, but men can't. And I said, well, that's insane. Should be the other way around, if anything. But okay, if I break that law, will you get in trouble? And they said, no, only you. I said, so if I'm willing to take the risk, so are you? And they said, yes. I said, okay, see you Monday. So on Monday, I got to start my career, which went on for nine months, of being a model at life drawing classes in the art department. My first real encounter with the visual arts. But I was the first male model to not wear an athletic supporter while I modeled. So on Monday, I went to the class and modeled for the first time. And on Wednesday, the enrollment in the class doubled. And 90% of them were female. What I did not understand is that all of those drawings would end up in dormitory rooms on the walls. I became a Playboy pinup in my junior year in college with hundreds of drawings of me au natural, in dormitory rooms across the campus. I have the very same naked feeling when you ask me these questions and we talk like this. I don't go naked much these days because I'm a guru and a teacher and a professor, and I usually speak in a much more formal way, and I don't speak about myself in such a naked way. <laughs> well, with you, I either have to pretend, which we've never done, or I have to tell the truth. So uh, literally, I don't know another interviewer that I would have these conversations with. And so thank you. <laughs> did you take advantage of your popularity? No, but they did. Guilty as charged. That's right. I don't hunt, but they did. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you something, Thomas, you're such a dear friend and I'm 
I'm so fond of you and so uh, in awe of your abilities as an artist and uh, an aesthetic being that I couldn't really have this conversation with anyone except someone like yourself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk about, I've never have actually told this. I never have told the stories I just told you in public. Well, I take that as a big compliment as is. <laughs> Would you tell um, the story or say a few words about how you and I met and how we started our collaboration? Thomas and I met at a Sanatan Core concert that he was the director of aesthetic and technical um, beauty and competence on when a, when a show goes around the world. If someone like that is not there, it, it just doesn't. My job at this particular performance of Sanatan Core was to read one poem and be the MC and introduce them since I live in Vancouver and they were visiting. So I read a poem and afterwards Thomas came up to me and said, that was a really lovely poem. Um, do you have more? And I said, yes, quite a few. And he said, well, would you send me some? Yeah, and I was expecting one or two. And overachiever that I am, I sold, sent him 300 poems. At least. I'm sure you remember, Thomas. That I sure do. E email was full. <laughs> and and I, I couldn't imagine what would happen when I did that because it had never happened before. So uh, I'm used to over enthusiasm and sending people more than they can deal with. And in this case, I just trusted my intuition. But a few months later, something came in the mail and Thomas had created an album that is so beautiful that when I heard it, it was springtime or summer here in Vancouver, I listened to it and then I just went out on the front lawn looked at the beautiful flowers and trees and cried for about 10 minutes. It was so much beauty that that the combination of the poetry, which wasn't mine but was a gift to me, had now been taken to an entirely another level. And funnily enough, I felt as if I was experienced, if I died and been reborn. And this poem is about that. And it's called Filled With You. And it's one of the poems that I sent him. And that became a song on the album that he created. Filled with you. I am filled with you. Thrilled with you. Built anew. Endless blue skies above. Eyes of love. Wrap around. Earth. One brown. Under me. Wonder me, fragrant earth, my rebirth, worn by me, your ecstasy opens wide. I have died and been reborn. Each new day morn is a grace upon my face, the smiling dew. I am filled with you. And this is the wonder, my friend, of, of what had led us to this point. I, it is such a delight. It's almost like a confidential conversation you can only have with someone who's qualified and 
So uh, thank you for creating this moment. Thank you for being who you are and telling your story so openly. I heard a saying the other day and I thought of you, and it is that if people are dancing, but the audience can't hear the music, they think the people are crazy. So you are the first musician I ever met who fully embodies this ability to hear the music in life in every situation. Not only to bring it out, but at a production level that you can replicate it and bring it into manifestation is so amazing. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. All right, my friend. Love you much. Smile.